Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel. RNZ National, Sue Kedgley and Connor English with me today. The local election results showed changing of the guard in many centres, including Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin, Auckland, Wayne Brown, eclipsed runner-up Efeso Collins, 144,619 to 89,811 votes, 24,000 plus vote difference. Local government NZ said turnout was just 36%, possibly lifting to 39% with special votes. Issues coming to the fore included whether postal voting is now fit for purpose, if we need a dedicated voting day, and whether results showed a real mood for change. Voting is literally a dying art, said one commentator. And both Jacinda Ardern and Chris Luxon have called for a change to lift the low voting rates, whatever that may be. Now, the person who said that quote, it's a dying art, is Andy Asquith. He's a local government academic and commentator, former director of public management group at Massey, and now keeps a close eye on New Zealand politics from Curtin University in Perth. Andy Kiora, good to have you on. Good afternoon, Wally. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Andy. Voting is literally a dying art. There's some pretty strong words there, Andy. Is it a dying art? I think it is, and the evidence backs that up. Young people, if they don't vote in the first three elections that they can vote in, they will never vote. And increasingly, we look at the profile of people who vote, especially in local body elections, and we see that it's oldies like you and I that vote, and young people are disengaged and disinterested. What trends did you? What other trends did you observe here, Andy? That caught your interest. I was going to ask Andy, what trends? uh, Other trends did you observe that caught your interest? Well, I think. it was, you, know, you mentioned earlier on that the general voter turnout figures are down. Um, and despite the fact that the last three years local government's been very front and centre in terms of news with three waters, most people are disengaged. They don't understand what's going on. Um, and it, it's a general downward spiral. You said you've given us some suggestions in a very interesting article. Uh, you'd, say, you'd suggest the following for starters. Um, we stop pretending that politics and local government don't go together. Evidence shows that where candidates are identified with the political party, then the chances of electoral success increase exponentially. The idea of the independent candidate is a sham. Now, we brought that up um, the other week with um, Grant Duncan. He was, and he pointed to the UK where it's more traditionally aligned with uh, party politics. That's very much the case, but I don't think you can really compare New Zealand with the UK. In the UK, councils have got different roles and responsibilities. Um, Within New Zealand, councils have, have, have got great potential to do some fantastic things. And if we have party politics involved, then people would be able to identify what candidates stood for, and that could be one way of engaging them more. You, you know, we have this year, a good example is, is Nick Smith in Nelson, um, who until last year was a National Party MP, but was independent. 
and we have other candidates from around the country that, that have been Labour MPs. Paul Eagle in Wellington, for instance, you know, he's still taking the Labour whip, but yet he, he sort of is an independent. It's a nonsense. All right, I'm sure that our panellists will have uh, much to say on this, uh, thoughts or questions. Sue, how did you read the figures uh, this time round? And bear in mind, too, that, you know, uh, a a mayor is just one uh, voice on the council, isn't it? Well, I think there's a bit of catastrophising going on there because... Here in Wellington, we I had 45% turn up, which I thought wasn't bad. And yep. we also had a real youth movement down here. There was a huge upsurge in youth involvement, which was why, one of the reasons why Tory Farnell got elected. And I think the, the I mean, it's, it's not only the fact that, um, you know, yes, sure, perhaps we should have voting booths and so forth, but I think that... Um, A lot of people were confused about who are these people. You know, they read their 200 words, but that doesn't help. Someone suggested all candidates should have to fill out an independent survey. You know, what are their views on whole key issues and something about their backgrounds. But also, I wouldn't agree entirely about having uh, parties involved in local government because I think there's been a bit of a reaction against that particularly down here in Wellington where it was sort of revealed that if you're in a particular party you're almost obliged to vote, you know, block vote whereas people do want councillors with open minds who are prepared to listen to the people and look at the ideas and not just be have sort of central government ideas imposed on them. All right, Andy? I think one of the problems there is that you know, it's a 200-word limit that, that candidates have. People don't know what candidates stand for. That's right. As soon as they have a party, they have a party rosette, then it gives an indication as to what their social and political values are. Ah, I see. Expect from mm, them. That's true. Well, that's an easy way to to understand it, isn't it? If you have a rosette, Connor, then you know uh, that's that, okay. I understand uh, more about that particular candidate. Uh, your thoughts on this, Connor? Well, I guess there's two things, aren't there? One is um, <clears throat> the information we know to get a councillor elected, and then secondly is how they behave once they're elected. And and I guess there could be advantages in understanding the views of a councillor by having some party label next to them, but as Sue's pointed out, there could be disadvantages once they are elected because then they're constrained by uh, the whip, if you like, like you are in, in, in central government. So um, I, I think that the, the turnout, I hope that it does improve because I think it is a bit of a disgrace, actually, if people aren't voting, uh, deliberately aren't voting in a democracy like New Zealand. Um, but I found, like myself, the biggest challenge I had was finding a post box. Well, there you actually go. Yes. Post, you know, I, I, carried a, I carried my voting form around in my, in my um, bag for about six days before I actually came across Andy, a post box. Andy, I've got to say, um, in all honesty, it was a huge week for me uh, last week, not least that I had uh, my little boy's fifth birth on Saturday and we almost never got there, seriously. Uh, and the trial of trying to get to a post box was a shocker. Is there, and that's just me, think of those time poor parents who are really, really busy if they got their voting forms. I mean, come on, there's got to be another way in 2020 what, in the 21st century. Absolutely, and that way is to basically to copy what we do for a general election. Mm. You have the election committee involved. You have a voting period. You have voting booths. 
Um, and back to the parties again. The parties run national campaigns. That gets people's attention. You have the, the orange man there. The people recognise. You have clarity across the country. That is something that at least should be tried. Mm. But I guess the thing you might ask, what's the point of local government? Because if you're going to be run by a central government political party, why do you have two systems? Why don't you just have uh, one? And I think there was a very, you know, I noticed the Prime Minister was saying she was not reading anything into the election results. But I think I agree with Connor that I think one of the clear messages was that there was a bit of a backlash against central government interference in local government, whether it's housing intensification, three waters or whatever. Three waters, so... I think that, um, you know, the people don't like central government trying to control local government. I think there was a bit of a backlash against that. That's got to be that's got to be brought up, Andy. I mean, but specifically around the water reforms going on along in Aotearoa, you don't have to go far... To, or, or actually travel around to notice the the deep sentiment and the opposition Absolutely. of many yes, regarding whether whether right or wrong, whether it has been sold well or not. Well, if you take three waters out of local government, local government's got immense potential and scope, and very few people talk about this. Um, the four well-beings basically say to each council, you can do whatever you want to do unless the law says you can't. So there's huge scope for councils there. The problem is far too many mayors and councillors, and quite often chief officers as well, don't have the ability or the vision or the wherewithal to act on this. There are a few examples of councils and mayors and chief executives that have stood up and publicly said, this is what we can do and what we will do. All right. no, very good, Andy Cura. Uh, that's uh, Andy Asquith there, um, who is a local government academic commentator. And look, very, very sorry for the phone line there. 19 past four of the panel. By the way, big response regarding um, life when you had no seatbelts in cars. We'll talk about that soon. Looking for a nice dinner out with the labour shortages cutting deep, you might struggle to get a table. In the Bay of Plenty, a local survey shows a whopping 86% of restaurants in the region need staff. It means many are reducing their hours or restricting the number of days they open. One restaurant owner described it as diabolical, the worst he's ever seen. Matt Cowley is the chief executive of Tauranga Business Chamber. Uh, Matt, uh, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Uh, just reading up on this particular issue, uh, for those who need staff, it sounds like quite a shocker. What are you seeing? Oh, it sure is, but it's not It's not surprising. We saw yep. and heard of the impacts in Queenstown during their peak winter uh, season. I was there uh, last month and experienced it too. Um, just signs up saying that we just don't have the staff. A number of business owners are working stupid hours, particularly into the early morning, to protect the welfare of their teams because they're so, so short-staffed that they have to pick up the slack, unfortunately. You're hearing anecdotally about, what, 14 to 16-year-olds earning uh, $20 an hour or more serving and clearing plates at restaurants. So uh, it's uh, an employee's market. You wouldn't blame them if they, uh, uh, they asked whatever they wanted. 
Oh, it sure is. Uh, and it's only going to get worse. Uh, from Saturday, our first cruise ship arrives in Tauranga, uh, mm-hmm. and there will be 100 cruise ships over the next sort of 160 days. So mm-hmm. on top of uh, our current residents' demand, on top of all the Aucklanders and Kiwis flocking to the beach over summer, there will also be the cruise ship tourists. So it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the practicalities before we get to the panel. You know, you've got your pizzeria, uh, you've got the bar. Um, one's called in sick, two are down. Uh, you're, you're a six-person operation, but you've got maybe three staff. It would be stressful. Oh, yeah, and there's a, a chef that can only do so many double shifts uh, day after day, so that's why a number of restaurateurs and cafes have just closed down just to give their staff a, a rest. Otherwise, they'll be leaving as well, and then, then they'll truly be stuffed. Sue Kidley. Yeah, well, it is a bit of a disaster. I can't really understand that. I see the government saying they issued 30,000 working holiday scheme applications since March, so why is it so bad? But the other interesting thing, it's actually impacting on kids at school who are going off mm-hmm. to, you know, instead of staying at school, they're going off to work somewhere. And I was talking to someone at Victoria University, and they said campus life is dead because so many students, they're working during the day, and then they're going home at night and watching online recordings of their lectures. So there's hardly anyone around at the university. And when they tried to bring the law faculty, tried to say, look, you've got to come into lectures, said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We just want to do our online lectures at night so we can earn money during the day. So it's sort of impacting on every aspect of our lives. Stay there, Matt. Um, Let's bring Connor in. Uh, Yeah, look, it's a dilemma, isn't it? I mean, it makes you think, where have all the people gone? And, and well, that's what uh, I was thinking. If you're looking at the, the immigration numbers, I mean, we, for quite a long time, well, for the last 300 years, we've had growing population all the time, except, uh, you know, through the pandemic, those numbers tapered off and now it's, you know, running negative. But it's not only um, just those um, net numbers, it's also the gross numbers. So when we had net immigration of about 50 or 70, 70, sorry, 70,000, um, we had gross immigration of, say, 180, um, you know, people coming in, 180,000 people coming in and, and say, 80,000 people or 100,000 people leaving. So not only were you getting the numbers, but you were getting the variety okay. and, and people at all ages and stages who could do all sorts of different jobs. And now we just don't seem to have that breadth of people it's who can do those It's quite a fair question, jobs. Matt. Uh, I think we'll see where have all the, uh, kind of where have all the people gone. Uh, what's the solution? You've got um, a number of cru- cruise ships coming. They hold uh, masses amount of people. You've got no staff. What's your expectations? Uh, I'd say the offering would be slimmed down. Uh, there will be people, uh, a lot of the hospitalities are very close friends, so although you might see them as competition, they are sharing staff as much as they can. They're alternating their offerings, so one opens one day and the others open the other days, uh, just to make sure that there is turnover. Um, but yeah, some people are just opting for those uh, you know, takeaway uh, shelves rather than actually uh, having kitchens, yes. so takeaway options, it's, they're just doing whatever they can, and I think they're, they're looking forward to winter where it's probably going to be a bit quiet because they know the summer's going to be hectic. 
Nice one, Matt. Kia ora. Thanks for being with us. That's Matt Cowley there, the Chief Executive of the Tauranga Business Chamber. We have Connor English and Sue Kirsty with us on the panel. Lovely to be with you. And boy, oh boy, did we get a lot of feedback about seatbelts. I still have a scar on my forehead from headbutting the rearview mirror in Mum's Mini when we crashed on the Kaimais in the late 70s, says one. Uh, what about this one? No seatbelts, the school run across town. Eight kids stuffed into a hold and someone laps. Also, the combo van on holiday, the length of the island, without the back seats, so all the camping etc. could fit in. Us mm. kids just lay on the top. Uh, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Almost didn't, don't, don't believe it, but to remind me that it happened, <laughs> we, have us, um, we have with us John, John Pottinger, who was a mechanic back then. Welcome, John. Thanks, Waller. Am I so Sue's right? No seat belts. You didn't have to put them in the car. No, a lot of it. So some of the cheaper cars had nothing, none, nothing at all. Some probably some more expensive cars had a lap belt, just a pure lap belt, not a shoulder point at all. So that, from vague recollection, we used to go and buy a dozen sets of lap and diagonals at a time and install them into cars. I presume it was made a requirement for a warrant of fitness about that time. So this would have been the early 70s. Right. So you as a mechanic, you were the ones that installed them in cars yes, that did yes. not have them. Exactly. That's right. It yes. just seems so strange now, John, to That's think. right. <laughs> Bear in mind, this was only the front seats as well. There was no requirement to put them in the back unless you were particularly safety conscious. They were purely for the front. My goodness. And I understand that those lap belts... They weren't much use. In fact, uh, they were did terrible. I... They were terrible. With the lap belt on, all that happened was the upper portion of your body obviously connected with either the steering wheel or the windscreen or what have you. So. And your back exactly. broken. Oh, good grief. John, thanks for the memories. Kill no problem. A positive so, example of the nanny state, which uh, we have so many people moaning on about. I'd bringing like, in seatbelts. Well, I'd like to know more about the campaign. And in fact, I'd like to know if there was a bit of a hoo-ha when um, the seatbelts came in. Was it sort of, a, you know, an intrusion of big government mm. into our lives? I'd love to well, know that. Well, but I think that there was in our, in our family because there was, a, you know, a dozen kids. Um, you couldn't have 12 seatbelts in a car. Not that we were all there in the car at the same time. So it was a bit of a pain in the neck trying to oh, fit yeah, everyone okay. in the car once you had seatbelts. Yeah. Uh, 27 past four, got to bring this up. Two people were arrested and later released uh, without charge over the protest at the National Gallery of Victoria. What did they do? Two Extinction Rebellion activists glued their hands to a Picasso painting in Melbourne, an anti-war expressionist work called Massacre in Korea. The prized Picasso was unharmed. It was protected by a perspex glazing. Nonetheless, um, was this inspired activism to protect our future or as Chris on Twitter said, the wicked seeking, uh, so, wicked self-seeking vandalism. What should be done to protesters who attach themselves to a Picasso? Said one tweet. Nonetheless, so you can imagine it set social media alight. What's your thoughts, Sue Kesley? I think it's a pretty innovative um, uh, demonstration myself. I mean, they didn't destroy that. They did set out not to sabotage the painting. And it certainly didn't disrupt people's lives, as um, many of the other protests do. So, yeah, I thought it was pretty innovative. Uh, and it was certainly drawing attention to their it's message. A, it's a Picasso. Yeah, but it's, they it's, haven't. It's, and, and the Picasso was about 
highlighting the opposition to war, etc. They weren't destroying the painting. They made it very clear they No, were. but, but why, why didn't they glue their hands to a gas pump or something? Well, they wouldn't have got the same attention. Connor? Uh, look, I think it's important that people can protest and, you know, they can uh, speak up about things that they believe in in a, in a, in a democracy. And I guess, uh, as you're saying, these guys are just um, slicing and dicing it a bit of a different way to, to get the cut through in the media. But what do you think? And they have. What do you think personally? If you went to the National Gallery of Victoria and you saw, Connor, these two Extinction Rebellion activists with their hands glued to the, okay, Fair enough. The glaze, perspex glazing of a mm. car. So, what would be running through your mind? Well, when are they going to get a feed? And what's going to happen when they need to go to the loo? Because if they're glued to it, how are they going to get away? I mean, it's not like you have to chase practical. them to, to find okay. them. Very practical. I think. The, I think the point is that they haven't destroyed the art, which yes. obviously is very valuable. Mm. And I, I think that's important. If they destroyed the art, I'd be a bit annoyed about that. But annoyed. That. The point, I guess, Sue, is as someone said, this two points. This will not result in anybody altering their views, and two, it'll only feed the stereotypes around far left activism. Well, I do think there is a uh, risk that some of their protests, you know, closing down bridges. I mean, apparently all over London, f- for about eight days in a row, the last eight days, you've. Whole, they've been stopping traffic in huge areas of the city, etc. That can just simply result in a backlash against their campaign. But I mean, it's it's it really it's the feeling of incredible frustration of the younger generation at the fact that you know we all seem to be doing nothing uh, much at all about climate change. So we can expect more and more of this sort of thing. And I, I come back to it. I thought it was very innovative. Interesting. Okay, very uh, very good. Kia ora. Uh, I'd be interested to know what the panel think about that. Two Extinction Rebellion activists glue their hands to a Picasso painting in Melbourne. It was protected by Perspex. What do you think? 2101. Lovely to have your company. I'm with uh, Sue Kedgley and Connor English today. And it's time for headlines.